Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This is Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so my guest this week is EXT founder Franco Fratton, who is making his return to Bikes and Big Ideas to do what is going to be part one of a multi-part deep dive on suspension tech. If you haven't listened to it already, I'd really recommend that you start with episode 110 of the show, which we'll link in the notes, which covers Franco's long career in suspension and the very interesting story of how he got to where he is today and founding EXT. But in that one, we didn't really get too much into the nitty gritty of suspension design and technology. And so that's where this episode comes in. There's a ton of good information in here, and Franco is a real wealth of knowledge on the subject, so I think you're going to learn something and really enjoy what you're listening to as well. But before we do that, I just want to say that if you're an intermediate or expert-level skier, you should check out our upcoming Blister Summit on February 12th through 16th. Located in Blister's hometown of Mount Crested Butte, Colorado, the Blister Summit is the only consumer-focused gear test and demo event in the world. Test skis, ski boots, goggles, apparel, and avalanche safety gear in the backcountry and on resort. Talk to company founders, ski with blister reviewers and professional skiers, learn from designers and innovators in nightly panel sessions, make some new ski buddies, and have a great time. For more information, head to blisterreview.com or check the show notes for a link. And with that, let's get right to my chat with EXT founder Franco Fratton. Well, Franco, it is great to sit down and chat with you again today. How are you and where are you today? I'm fine, thank you. I'm in Italy. I'm still uh, I'm in my apartment and uh, yeah, still uh, very nice and warm today. Uh, we're approaching evening. It's uh, uh, 5.30, quite close to 6 o'clock, so soon the daylight we go, but it's it's all fine. The weather is been really nice in the last few days so it's okay well that's good glad to hear it well when we last had you on we had what i thought was quite an interesting episode but it mostly focused on your background and the history of ext and we didn't do quite as much about the more technical side of suspension design and all of that and more recently since then we were chatting a little bit and there's just a lot of kind of, I think, misinformation and a lot more that people who are out there riding their bikes, buying suspension for them could understand about how their suspension actually works and what it's doing, both to sort of make better informed decisions about the parts that they're buying, but also just about how to think about setting up the things that they already have. And so we decided it would be a good idea to kind of sit down and do a bit more of a in-depth technical chat about suspension design and technology, since you are such a wealth of information on that subject. And we'll just kind of run through a lot of the more technical bits here and um, kind of have you do a little bit of a tutorial for us all. So I think that's kind of our mission as we've laid it out. Where would you like to start? It is nice to be able to talk broadly about damper technique. Okay. As you know, I'm quite old, and I started my official career in, in dampers at Fox 
in 75. So I believe that who in Europe know about Fox, you know, because of the work I did with Fox and for Fox following at the time the motocross. So uh, I strongly believe that Fox was the one that made the big change into the damper technology uh, at the time. Um, I think that the industry was uh, really lazy uh, in the 60 and 70, and especially, as you probably know, uh, the major industry, it's always relating to automotive, to car. But they are the ones that uh, have uh, the most interest in development and in funding solution. But for once, was the motorcycle suspension that made the big difference that after became is the state of art also for cars. And I'm not only talking about racing car, but also any type of cars. So I think that we should talk a little bit uh, on the history of suspension and why we have dampers, okay? I always call in dampers, even if we generally, uh, in conversation, it's quite common to use shock absorber or shocks, okay? It's very much American style, you know, to call in shocks. Uh, the, the real correct terms, it should be dampers, okay? In fact, dampers do not absorb shocks. It's the springs system that eventually absorb shocks. Yes, damper maybe those days, or not maybe, some damper where is possible, we can also add this kind of capacity. But generally, shocks are uh, dependent on the spring and bump rubber that you have in the system. The, the dampers is a main work is to really damp the vibration that is caused by the spring system. So, you know, we, we have this mass and springs in a vehicle, even two-wheel vehicle today, mountain bikes that are suspended, and that's the term suspended, they straight away make a clear statement about something is suspended, is not, you know, uh, solid, and the suspended established that we have uh, a, a sprung mass system and an unsprung mass system that are sprung mass is suspended via the spring that is connected also to the unsprung mass. So the damper is there to somehow control the spring movement. And the spring movement also depends of the different events that are happening underneath the unsprung masses and over the spring from the sprung masses and the body of the, in the, ca in the case of the mountain bike, 
the body of the rider. That is much more important than the weight, the mass of the sprung mass. Okay. It might be good worth depositing here just for a quick moment and uh, give people a reminder of what we're talking about by sprung and unsprung mass. And so the difference here is we're talking about by sprung mass, we mean the weight of all of the things that are kind of above the suspension in the bike and rider system. So in the case of a mountain bike, that's the rider itself. It is the front triangle of a full suspension bike and the parts that are sort of upstream from the suspension. And then by unsprung mass, we're talking about the things that are below the suspension, essentially. So that is the wheels and the tires and the rear cassette and the brake rotors, et cetera, the things that are, if you imagine the suspension to be working, quote unquote, theoretically perfectly so that you're riding along over a rough section of ground and the rider is staying totally still, but the wheels are moving up and down to allow that to happen. The, uh, the sprung mass is the, the things that are moving in that scenario. And the unsprung mass is the stuff that it is ideally trying to keep steady and not bouncing up and down above it. Is that a fair summary? Yes. Yes. In, in fact, you know, when, when we go to school, they show us uh, a spring, okay, attached to a hook. And if you had a mass and you move it, uh, theoretically, the springs, once uh, you put a load and it start moving up and down, it will never stop. Okay. And uh, so if you want to somehow to stop, this harmonic motion, there you fit dampers. Okay, so damper has been around for many, many years. But as a start, especially in horse carriage and after also in the earlier car, no one really understood that the system had a damper inside. Okay, everybody built a kind of a spring, in general, they were lift springs, so these long uh, steel pieces at the one on top of the other with a little bit of a pyramid style shape. Uh, before to be in steel, they were in wood, okay? But no one has started to realize that this system has a damping effect due to the friction of the different material, a different lay of uh, the material. So that's very funny because uh, somebody about, I think, more than 250 years ago, a, an English guy, I think, he patented a coil spring. So, you know, what we today we call coil spring, you know, this uh, coil wound around and he never went into the automotive till 1940. And it, it was uh, a, a test from the Automotive Engineering Society in UK that a certain moment established that the coil couldn't be used in an automotive suspension system because it was not possible to control it. And it was much better to use lift spring, okay? So this coil that now is everywhere and everybody use it, it was well 
around, you know, 200 years ago, but it's only, uh, let's say, 100 years that we use it in, in uh, to do the job that we wanted to do. So uh, at the time appeared quite clearly that uh, something needed to be done to control the movement of the spring. It's been few attempts. The majority has been friction device. Okay, so they are some disc putting together, you could preload it and, and sometime also adjusting. Okay, they were working quite well for the time, but obviously they have a limited capacity and often their performance was also depending from the weather condition. If it was raining or if it was very dry, if we had uh, dirt, sand. So slowly, people founding the way and uh, they start building uh, what they call in damper using hydraulic. Uh, the most successful at the time was one, one of the most difficult even today to be built, that it is a rotative damper. So rotative damper, it's a very, very interested piece of engineering. I like it as a toy. I've been doing quite a lot of work. I think it's one of the dream for everybody that work in suspensions, okay? When uh, I was at Ferrari working, uh, we did an F1 with a, a rotative damper. was quite unsuccessful, to be honest, because uh, a lot of very critical area on a damper, but at the time, uh, I'm talking about 1920, something like this, the, I think it was Uland or some name like this, built this rotative damper that it have a, an arm to attach into the chassis and to the leaf spring, and it did a quite a good job. So from there, it's been some development, and we end up, I think, around 19. 20, 1930, to have the first telescopic damper that, just to make it also very funny, the first telescopic damper was a twin tube damper. So today, you know, we are talking as a twin tube to be the most advanced uh, type of damping system that you want to have, but into a kind of a design that is very common today, it is also the oldest that has been introduced in uh, the automotive. So uh, it was a twin tube. And it was a twin tube because I think it was an easier way to achieve what you needed to do. Uh, the monotube came after. And uh, monotube was developed more really very uh, finely by the carbon and afterwards Bistein in Germany that developed, I think, the most advanced monotube damper ever. I still think it's one of the best damper existing. Yeah, maybe not too sophisticated for adjusting and everything, but very, very uh, well uh, uh, specified, very good high quality. So, basically, one thing that we have established from these few words, 
or maybe too many words, it is, is we are spring because we want to have some comfort. We do not want to be throughout of our vehicle while we're driving. We have the spring, but the spring, they do a part of the job. They need to be controlled. Otherwise, they will go in kind of a resonance situation that is very, very dangerous. And I don't know if, if you ever saw, but I think quite often you can see in motorway, you see a car in front of you where you see all this wheel bouncing, you know, with a very scattered way. That is what is happening when you have a, a resonant frequency in the system. And if you start having maybe two damper or two wheels that have this, it will become very difficult to keep it on the road. So the damper, it's extremely important to control the full system of the dynamic of your vehicle. Doesn't matter if it's a two-wheel or if it's a four-wheel. One other thing that I need to make it people understand because it's very, very critical because quite often talking to different people, and not only to mountain bike, uh, they said, oh, I would like to have a damper that when it go down, it get, you know, stiffer. Or when it come back, it, it get, uh, you know, it can be uh, more uh, uh, slow only down to the bottom and after it need to get uh, easy to come up. So damper do not understand position. Damper only understand velocity, okay? Uh, spring understand position. Let's say understand, you know, they depend on their position. Damper do not know where they are. Damper only understand the velocity, how they're moving. So it's all depend on the specific of the valving, of your damping coefficient that you choose, but it will be the same anywhere around the stroke. So doesn't exist making a damper that uh, is uh, position dependent, okay? If you want to make a damper that is position dependent, it is possible to do it. Obviously, you start having other need in terms of space, in terms of volume, in terms of length. That for sure are very difficult to get on a mountain bike where we are always working with very tiny, small damper with very high velocity ratio or motion ratio. So that is not so common. Let's say that, just one sec, the most advanced uh, system that has been introduced in the last few years in mountain bike, it is this hydraulic bump stop, if you want, that is making a damper somehow also stroke dependent. Only the last few millimeters. I think I was the one that uh, did it first in 1901. Okay. And we already in 85 at Fox, we had a hydraulic rebound stop on the monoshocks of the Honda because we were running one to four motion ratios on very, very big stiff spring in, in, uh, in the Honda motocross. So we needed to stop this spring uh, that was very much preloaded with a, a cushion. So we introduced a, an hydraulic bump stop 
in rebound, but in bump, I'm pretty sure I did it in 91, and it's always been on all our off-road dumper. So that's the only thing you can talk, but a part of this, a damper is only dependent on velocity, okay? So impossible and, and, and incorrect to talk about stroke and position. Yeah, I think that's a, a good and important point. And something that, I, that has come up in a lot of conversations I've had with people who are struggling with their own suspension setup and that I'm sort of trying to help them with is that a lot of folks are doing things like they're finding their their suspension to feel a bit harsh and they want better they want to kind of make it feel more compliant and less less stiff and there are a lot of people out there who are then taking a lot of the compression damping out with the idea that compression damping is somehow making the the everything feel stiffer and harsher but then of course what you have to do is then you have to, in order to just not have the thing bottom out all the time you then need to run more spring and the, the really the critical point that you've already made here is just that spring and damper f- perform two fundamentally different functions that need to work together in conjunction with each other and and the idea that more compression damping is inherently going to be more harsh and then to make your the suspension feel more plush you need to take that off is very often incorrect and people i think kind of there's just not the best understanding of that necessarily so that's a, a good place to start and like you said the thinking about the two as being position dependent in the case of the spring and velocity sensitive in the case of the dampers a good way to kind of break apart what the two things are doing Set for sure uh, we we also need to accept that, like always, we have to make compromise. Okay, so and for sure, it is area while the suspension and the vehicle is moving that you want damping or you do not want damping. Okay, let's say in any kind of suspension. Uh, what is controlling the the frequency of the spring, it is the rebound damping. It's the one that makes the suspension, let's say, quieter or controlled. We have been talking about the damper is working with the velocity. You know, most of the damper today are adjustable, okay? I think here it's another very important point that need to be established. Never judge that the quality of the damper is of the number of click or the adjustment range. A part that is... uh, uh, you know, it's all relative because for me, maybe 20 is too much and for another 20 is too, is too small. And the range of 100% for someone is too big and for some other is too small. But for sure, it's not a parameter of judgment for quality. Okay. Uh, generally, damper have uh, 
two types of valving system inside. The most common, just to make it easy, it is the orifice, okay? And the orifice damper, it is the basic damping system that you have in any damper. So if somebody wants to experience a, what is an orifice damper, or an office dumping characteristic, it just takes a syringe, it puts some oil in, and if you press the syringe slowly, you will see that some oil it will come out. If it's pressed very quickly, you will see that no oil is going to come out, or very little, it will, what you call in choke, okay? And this, in the same time, is going to show you what is happening with an orifice, and what is happening with the velocity dependency. Because the more the velocity, less flow it will go through the orifice. So when uh, you're talking about do some adjustment, it is very, very important to know what type of valving system you have into your damper. So one is the orifice. And when we adjust rebound, I will say that 99% of the time, we just adjusting the orifice size. So it is a needle with some shape, but this is what the main adjustment system that we have in all damper, okay? Well, let me just tell one thing also. When we're talking about damper for MTB, we are not talking a animal just built for MTB. Damper are the same, you know, they're just smaller or, or larger and longer or whatever, but they all have the same type of characteristic. They all have piston, orifice, valving, and whatever. So it doesn't exist an MTB damper. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a damper built for MTB, but it's not an MTB damper that is different to a car damper. So generally, when you adjust your, uh, uh, rebound adjustment, you are going to restrict this orifice. So it's like, uh, you know, if uh, you have uh, a little needle that go into a little hole. If this needle is uh, far away from the hole, the orifice diameter is large. When you go inside, the diameter gets smaller. And this, doing this, you change the pressure inside your system, it's basically a drop in pressure. And uh, there you, with the drop in the pressure, you generate a force that it is this force that control the movement, okay? It can be in bump or it can be in rebound, but this is how it's acting. It's also, I think, quite important to understand then this orifice can have, let's say, two operating options. It can operate in both directions because if a hole, okay, that is always open. So when you adjust it, you will adjust for either bump and either rebound because uh, if it's not a one-way system, so... Personally, I think it's very, very important to have 
always in all your valving system in the damper to have a one-way valve. So you really divide completely the two motion in bump and in rebound. And when you're adjusting, you're not going to change one, but in the same time you change on the other. Now you said, so if every damper has the same system, what is the difference? But the difference in what is coming aside of this It's the other complexities that you put in the damper that are your valve. In damper, valve are generally what we call in pressure relief valve. So a certain moment, you know, depending on how you have been tuning the valve, the pressure that is growing, you will end up to be able to open this valve. So pressure will be relieved and uh, uh, you will have a, a kind of more or less control system. Again, you said, yeah, but if everything is the same, so what is different? But what is different is the type of valve design that you choose. And here again, we have option because we have a shims valve, we have poppet valve, uh, we have spool valve, we have many different options. For sure, they all achieve something with the damping side. But if as you have such a big variety of velocity in your suspension while it's working, there it is how it is important that the damper has been built with the capacity to control with your adjustment all the different possibilities that you have into the velocity spectrum that uh, the damper will see. So it is, let's say, quite a, a clear division. You know, we often talk about low speed damping and high speed damping. Okay. As we said, low speed damping is generally the damping that you want to control or to change or to adapt to control the strong mass, the big mass. Okay, so you and your chassis on top of your bicycle. And they are generally, the masses, they also move at a lower velocity. That doesn't mean lower velocity in speed of the bike. It's lower velocity in terms of mass movement. Okay, so you generally, you should use your low speed adjustment to control the low speed movement that are generally longer movement, longer movement in terms of travel, but are the ones that are also working at a lower velocity in terms of suspension velocity and are generally the sprung mass. After, we always talk about high-speed adjustment. So high-speed adjustment have to do with the high-velocity 
of the suspension movement. And in fact, when you look at diagram of a damper, and now here it's a little bit difficult to see a diagram because we don't have a television, <laughs> but you know, generally, if you can put a cross on a piece of paper with your pen, you do a cross. And from the center of the where you have the intersection uh, of the tube, you draw a, like a, a banana shape as they go up. Okay? Just go up wherever you want. Generally, this uh, it is what is a low speed uh, uh, characteristic of a damper and low speed. It's a parabolic uh, kind of form. They go up like a banana. Now, whenever you want, it doesn't matter where, because we are not here talking about, uh, you know, fine tuning. Just take a point of your banana and just go up like a with a 45 degree line that go uh, on, the, on the space. Okay. So the first part of the shape, it is a low speed. And the second line that you have draw, it is a high speed. So you can see that it's going to be a big difference in form. Okay. And it's also established that the orifice characteristic, okay, increase with a, what is called the square of the velocity, the force, while the high speed characteristic can be tuned much more with a much more linear characteristic that can be more progressive, more regressive, more digressive, but for sure with a completely different shape. So, generally speaking, the orifice, obviously, when you will change adjustment, your banana shape, it will go more and more up because you restrict more and more the hole. And uh, this it will obviously make feel a big difference in in the control of the chassis, and the other part that uh, it's a more linear characteristic is what you want to use for uh, the more high frequency, high velocity. Okay, when you think about this. It's quite obvious that it is area where if you have too much damping, you will feel harsh. But the harsh of the damping, it will be more noticeable if you are wrong into the high velocity, okay? And not when you, if you are wrong in the low velocity. You could probably do without the high velocity damping. In certain part, you will want no damping. Okay. You will want just a wheel to go up freely as much as can. Obviously, you can't have infinite travel. So, at a certain moment, you need to stop it. But it's for sure some characteristic, a very high speed or high speed that you could do without having bump damping. Okay. Again, it is, as I said, it's a compromise because. If you don't have it, 
uh, you won't have uh, any kind of other way to stop in a very, very big event. So it's something that you need to consider. Valve are there to be able to offer the best control of this different situation. It's a choice of who is building the damper, okay? If you, you can build the damper that have a big range of adjustment where you have shims, but the shims basically, they never open. They never really work as a pressure release or they will open at a very, very high speed. Generally, you can see this characteristic when you have dampers that have a big range of adjustment, a massive range of adjustment through your low speed. Yeah, your low speed is affecting. People get their bike, close their rebound adjustment or close their low speed bump adjustment, and they push and say, oh, wow, look at this. It's really working well, okay? I think one of the worst things that you can do to judge, you know, the capacity and the, the, the quality of your product, because you can see you go from a lock suspension through the damper and a free suspension because you have opened the damper, okay? Yes. By hand, at very low speed, you will see this, but what will happen when you are on the field? This, it could be a dramatic experience, really dramatic. So, yes, I have big adjustment. I will make some point into the velocity range of my suspension to be controlled, but there will be only some point. When you want to make a performance product, your range of adjustment need to be restricted and your valve need to be developed and tuned for this type of application, for your riding application uh, capacity. Because again, you know, it's not only the bike. The bike is just a tool in your hand but the bike is one of the most difficult tool also to be tuned and I think to be ride, especially when we're talking about a mountain bike, you know? So uh, the way we are capable to move around, you know, the body English that you can use can make a big difference with the same bike, with the same way person, say hi person, whatever, on his capacity to move around while doing the same type of uh, road surface. So that's why it is very important to be able to have a very good uh, tune product, not a, and, and this is, I will say, it is a big difference between OE damper, that are doing their job, for sure, and they're there to make everybody to be able, you know, to ride a bike. But when you want to really have a performance product, at this point, the damping, it's very, very critical. 
in your damper design, it is really very important. Let's take a moment just to pause there and kind of summarize a little bit. So a lot of good information in there, I think. To start with, just to talk a little bit about, get more about the low-speed orifice damping versus the high-speed valved circuit that's stacked on top of that. Basically, you have, as you described, a very different shape of the curve in the what we're calling the low-speed region and the high-speed region because what is effectively happening is that you've got first an orifice, just basically a hole that some oil flows through as the suspension moves. And once you are trying to cram more oil through that hole, pressure builds up. And once you have enough pressure to open up the or begin to open up the valve, which is the high speed circuit, you then have oil starting to flow through that as well. And once you've crossed that threshold, you're now into what we're calling the high-speed region. And so one of the things, too, that we haven't entirely touched on, but I think it's worth noting, is sort of how those two things are related to each other. Because basically, depending on both how your high-speed valve is adjusted and how the low-speed one is adjusted influences where that crossover point happens, where the high speed opens up, right? Because as you, if you have, let's say you've closed off the low speed very tightly. So there's very, there's lots of low speed damping being offered out of that. You'll then very quickly build up enough pressure to open the high speed circuit and move into that region. Whereas if you have the low speed very opened up, it takes a lot more velocity and a lot more oil flow to build the pressure to cross over into the high speed circuit. And so the two that influences where that crossover happens and where you have the change in shape of the curve that results from the high speed circuit opening. And so those two are there's some some interrelationship there. I'll let you pick it back up there, but just kind of wanted to help position where we're at at this point and well yeah where do we go from here you know this uh, crossover point between low speed and high speed is generally called the knee okay because it's this thing that look like a knee except for sure dependently on how you have specified your damper characteristic uh, it will be higher on, on lower what I tend to to make happen, it is that you do not want to have such a big adjustment over why you can change really dramatically your knee point. So you can make something really very difficult to ride or sometime, yeah, in both area, to be too soft or to be too hard. So that's what I'm saying. Uh, the range of adjustment, it is a choice to accomplish something, but I don't think it is a choice to make a dedicated product to uh, enhance quality riding. You know, 
it, it's I don't want to say that it is the same thing, but you know, if you buy a small car, a Fiat 500, you know, we generally call Fiat 500. Yeah, it's a 700 kilo car, and uh, you go on the road and you will feel any kind of road surface. Okay. Now, if you buy a Mercedes that is four times the weight, okay, let's not think about four times the price, but just four times the weight, because here we're talking about this, you will feel much more comfortable. Even if you have the same type of damper, you know, dampers that maybe cost, uh, you know, $50 each, but the bigger difference it is, uh, you know, your mass that go over this. I think you have to be able to tune for what is, is going to be uh, your range of velocity and uh, your uh, mass moving around of the vehicle. So once you have established, okay, what are your capacity, you won't need anymore to have 25 click you will generally you end up to work in one to click here and what to click there so it's uh, i think it is very very difficult uh, for a a consumer to be able to understand where the damper is working because uh, once it will feel oh I was feeling very well uh, with 10 click open in, in, in low speed, but I end up that I was anyhow uh, often uh, bottoming, okay? Or, you know, my ride was too low, you know? And uh, so I turned on the other way and I wasn't bottoming anymore. And I was talking about low speed. Yes, if you know, your speed adjustment allowed to have a bigger flow pass before going to work uh, on the high-speed circuit, yeah, this is what is happening, you know? And this is what I think it is where stand uh, the big work on the damper manufacturer to be able to tune a damper more to adapting to the rider okay it's it is very difficult choice it's a big compromise because i can appreciate that when you build the damper that have to suit a lot of people and a lot of spring rate and a lot of thing is not so easy to make it so uh, i'm not here to to talk about what it is the best um option is to make it with a lot of range or not what i'm saying it is for sure if you have too much adjustment range you will find it very very difficult to fine tune in your damper because uh, the interference between the low speed and the high speed is going to be massive also today you know going back to talk about monotube or twin tube okay Twin tube has always been built, and uh, especially in, in motorsport, as they've been becoming very fashion, 
because uh, they allowed a very quick way to work on the damper. Okay. You have the valves that are external to the system, so it's easy to change, to adapt, okay? But when you look into a mountain bike, where everything needs to be very small, uh, your twin tube system is no longer what it was in its original genetic uh, design, has become a hybrid system where uh, you have static valve, uh, still uh, valve on the main piston, uh, low speed, high speed, but because they are working together and it's going to be very, very difficult to fine tuning what you're trying to do. And uh, I think uh, when, you know, somebody state, oh, a twin tube, it is a better damper, I think is making a big mistake, okay? It's a better damper is a damper that is doing the best damping characteristic for the application. As I said before, the damper only understands the speed is working, okay? The damper doesn't know if it is a twin tube or if it is a monotube, you know? Uh, and uh, the rider, it will feel good independently of it is a monotube or a twin tube, dependent on the damping qualities that is there. So um, I think the complexity of some system are not today helping the fine tuning of uh, a damper. Also, you know, it is uh, quite important some of the um, area that has been developed around the mountain bike damper. If you look, a certain moment, we had, uh, I think, has been an abuse of the system. You know, the bottom out in the damper was done on putting 100 and 100 PSI in the reservoir of your damper. So the damper was becoming a spring, okay? So at a certain moment, the damper was becoming a spring. Uh, this, again, uh, it was a way, I think, to um, implement, okay, an area, okay, that wasn't really uh, supposed to be the damper work, okay? Also, when you, you are running such high pressure and the damper is also getting hot, the damper is start also uh, becoming even stiffer. So sometimes you're talking about people are saying it is harsh, okay? They start feeling harsh. I think it's very important also there to establish when it's becoming harsh, because uh, for sure a damper, when it's working, the final result of all the valving, dropping pressure and all things is becoming heat. Okay. So all damper work with oil. Okay. 
yeah, we all have tried, I think, to put some water in the damper and, and we got some kind of result. But we all go back to use uh, oil as end. So we don't need to go into this kind of discussion, but we all have oil, okay? The oil is also one of the biggest enemy f- that we have in a damper, okay? Honestly, it's a one of the biggest problems we have uh, in damper for quality, for characteristic, for reliability, for consistency, come from the oil. And uh, for sure, you can use a different type of oil quality, okay? But for sure, all oil react in, a, in, in the same way. And for example, you know, at school, we learn that oil are not compressible generally. You know, they told, uh, oil is not compressible. No, oil is very much compressible to start off. But one thing that many people don't know, that the worst characteristic of the oil is that the oil expands. The oil, when it's getting hot, and hot, I don't mean from 20 degrees C to 100, from 20 to 30, the oil expands. To 20 to 40, the oil span and span quite a lot. So, the only way where this expansion can go is to go in your reservoir, okay, where you have already a pressure and very often you have quite a lot of pressure. So, sometimes the harshness that you can find in your suspension while you're riding is not really because you have the wrong. Uh, dumping setting, but because you have the wrong pressure into your reservoir that is making your damper become also dependent of the position where it is because the pressure in your reservoir is gone up. So it is, you know, a little bit of a cycle that you need uh, to, to check. And, and it's, again, it's very important to be able to judge when uh, you're looking into the damper, also this area. It is another fact that is very, very critical, that damper are very, very much dependent from velocity, but even more dependent from the frequency. Okay? So frequency is becoming an acceleration uh, effect. So when uh, you are uh, working at very, very high speed, you know, uh, your damper it will react for the same velocity because frequency, you know, is frequency go up, but the stroke maybe go down. So the final velocity is the same, but every single movement is accelerating in a different way. And uh, you your damper, any damper, it will be coming more or less dependent from the frequency. So you will have a different result in riding. So again, what can you do? Sometimes you want to have a damper that with a high frequency is having very little damping because uh, you don't need much damping when you have very, very small movement you want to have it really free. So all these areas are very difficult to understand for the consumer, 
but a very critical when a manufacturer builds a damper and makes certain choice. Okay. Obviously, uh, it's up after to the, to the customer to choose what he prefers. But I think it's really important that he, everybody understand that uh, it is a complex animal, a damper. Okay. Uh, he have a lot of effect dependent in, on the, on what is happening around him, self. Okay. And uh, it's very important to be able to appreciate some simple area. Okay. That are the one that uh, are going to give you the, the capacity to have a good uh, performance and, and, and safe also riding. So what I'm, what I'm thinking, it is that uh, anyone have a philosophy around building damper, but we are all working on trying to achieve uh, the same thing, okay? So we need to control the spring. We need to make in some comfort in the riding. We need to uh, enhance uh, uh, the uh, contact patch load on the tire. Um, and uh, the last thing I think we want is uh, to have a, a damper that we said, oh, this is good for everybody. That is not true. It doesn't exist a damper that is good for everybody. Yeah. The damper design must be capable to be adaptable for everybody. But no way that can be the one is good for everybody. For sure, the manufacturer makes a certain choice. He can make it a little bit more uh, fine, finer to be tuned for everybody, okay? But um, that a monotube is going to be better than a twin tube, that a twin tube is going to be better than a monotube, is just, just talking, okay? One can be worse than the other, and the other can be worse than the other, or much better, but it only depends on the characteristics that we, we have been building. So I, I know that it's not a black magic thing, Okay, because sometimes they mention, you know, uh, um, I remember reading a book and, and it was a phrase uh, from Carol Smith. Carol Smith has been one of the best, most influential racing engineer in the motorsport. And he said that he really found it very difficult to work uh, on the racing car when hydraulic damper came along and he would prefer working at the time of the friction damper because with friction damper you couldn't make many mistakes but with a, an hydraulic damper you have so many options that you could make really bad or really good but it was really easy to go wrong so um, it's Undoubtedly, uh, not an easy, you know, 
topic uh, for people, okay? And, and there, I think, is where who is manufacturing need to make the good choice to allow the, the you know, the consumers, the rider, to be able not to make big mistake. And, and this is, uh, I think, the biggest difference you can have from one company to another, okay? Yeah, a lot of good things to kind of touch on there. And I I think your point that having a single damper set up that works for everyone is impossible is a key one. And so it's one of the things that, frankly, in my job of reviewing suspension is often kind of difficult, that you need to figure out a way to talk about not just – if you're looking at a, a – Rear damper, especially because those tend to get specifically tuned for a given bike fit and a given application somewhat more than forks tend to in the mountain bike world. You can have you can have the same model of rear damper that is set up extremely differently for a different rider, a different bike, a different application, and having being sort of thinking that anything that you are experiencing with a given iteration of that damper is necessarily universally applicable isn't really all that accurate because how it is configured for a given application also matters immensely. And along those lines, what you said about not being able to make any very specific claims about, you know, a twin tube is better than a monotube or vice versa or whatever it might be is also a really good note because as you've been saying throughout, it's all it all comes down to the damping that is produced by a given application. And you can produce very different results with designs that are theoretically conceptually similar. And so it's a little bit like the different types of suspension pivot layouts on different bike frames. People say things like, oh, it's a VPP bike, so it's going to do X, Y, and Z. And you can do extremely different things in how you set up the kinematics of a bike with what has technically a VPP layout or a DW link one or a horse link or any of the other numbers of different layouts that you can think of. It's not as if in most cases there is too many specific behaviors that are necessarily inherently true for that layout and it all comes down to how you actually design it and dampers are just the same so um i think that's an important thought for people to to kind of hold in their minds when they're thinking about these things and looking at what they're buying uh the finer details really do matter rather than just the high level oh it's a twin tube so x y and z or whatever Yeah, I I agree perfectly. Um, you know, <laughs> we build a lot of twin tube down there, so I have nothing against twin tube. Uh, I just wanted to make it very clear. I think that it's a choice. If it, it is a philosophy, I strongly believe that uh, uh, when we build damper, we need to build it for the application and not to be you know, blind or uh, uh, somehow having uh, a pre, uh, you said, premeditate uh, idea, okay? 
we speak all the time here, for example, on what we, we should do. So uh, today we think we can achieve better result with, uh, let's say, monotube damper, but I'm sure that uh, we can make, uh, or anyone that want to try and with more success or less success or more complication, okay, to, uh, to achieving, as you said, the, the same result. At the end, what is going to make the difference is not the technology that you've been using, are the number that are coming out in the right velocity, with the right shape, with less hysteresis, with um, uh, more response. Uh, uh, this is what is going to make the difference. Yeah, uh, it, 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 it is that I think the the very nice thing on 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 this job. It is that, uh, uh, yeah, for sure. It is some areas that are very important. You know, yeah. If you have a lot of friction, you know, it's not going to work. Okay, so. Yeah, you don't want to have friction, and you want to have the lower friction possible. Yeah, for sure. But this doesn't – for the twin tube or a monotube, that's the same. You know, the, you need to have a very low friction, and you always have to have very low friction. So, but the, the result is for sure not dependent of the choice of the uh, circuit, but it's dependent to have find the correct number for that application and even more for the rider that is riding this bike. Okay. So uh, this is, I, I think it is very, very critical. Uh, so we, we, we start our discussion, you know, when we were talking uh, a few weeks ago, it was really around this monotube and twin tube. Okay. And, uh, and and if you remember, I was uh, not upset, but I was finding, you know, uh, difficult to agree in, in, in the comment that, oh, very strange that it's a, it's a monotube and it's working good. No, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> it's not, it is, uh, to be honest, I think it's quite more difficult to get a monotube to work and perform uh, well, because you have more to do with a monotube, okay? To achieve something that is a little bit more easy uh, to achieve because it's also physics around what we're doing. It's a lot of physics. So uh, it is some inherent uh, characteristic that maybe are helping more to achieve something, but if you know what you're doing, you can achieve the same quality. Maybe you work a little bit more. Maybe you need to be more careful on what you're doing, you know, on, on the decision. But for sure, the system are, uh, you know, uh, capable to achieve the same thing. Okay. So this is, I think, what is very important. In real truth, the best damper ever is a performance it is a damper that is non-adjustable. Okay. When uh, in Formula One, we went to very old style damper, bulky damper, big damper, to very, very small, all type of adjustment. And now the majority of 
damper in Formula One are non-adjustable. Okay, so uh, if you are looking for performance, once uh, you have established certain characteristics, the best in terms of really performance and consistency, it's a damper that doesn't have all these valve around that are difficult to be tuned, that have, uh, because of the design, they need to be very careful pressure balance and all and all the rest of the thing so uh, dependently again on the application you know you could do very well even with a non-adjustable damper so uh, again adjustability is not a term of quality judgment for sure i really like that note because i mean to your point if you have a non-adjustable damper that is tuned absolutely perfectly for the application and is, you know, the goal of the adjustments are to produce the right damping curve that you are trying to achieve and make it easier to get there by having some ability to make adjustments just by turning a knob rather than having to take the damper apart and adjust the valving and all the rest. But if you get all the, the internal stuff just right, then you know, there's really not that same need to adjust it afterwards. And so, and, you know, as we've been saying throughout, all of these things are a compromise. You're, there's no single perfect answer. And so you have to just make compromises and decide what trade-offs are most appropriate for what you're hoping to achieve. And that's why we do see mountain bike dampers with a bunch of external adjustments because it's, a lot of people just aren't going to want to take the time and expense to have all of their dampers revalved several times to dial in exactly what they want. But, you know, if, if we all did that, we could potentially end up somewhere pretty excellent eventually, but it would be time consuming and expensive. And it's totally understandable that lots of people don't want to go to those lengths. So I was a little bit, maybe a little bit visionary and, and too theoretical, okay? What I'm saying, technically, once you have established the correct damping coefficient and characteristic, you don't need to have adjustability, okay? Uh, but it is a big job that I don't think... Uh, Anyone want to go in because I understand because we do it sometimes that is not easy. But I was just talking, you know, technically, but for sure, you know, what you need to give to customer are well developed product for that application with quite good basic characteristic in terms of uh, dumping versus velocity and frequency and that they can tune it that in a way to 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 achieve uh, the best for their understanding on what they need okay and uh, and that's why you need to have uh, some adjustment we, uh, what i'm sure that uh, is not on giving many many adjustment that you will do the best job okay we 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 can see uh, many different choices from different brand on what they want to to do. 
okay? Because we are free to, to decide what we want. So uh, you can see that some of this research to be able to offer a damper, what I'm calling a damper, and some others, they are working toward offering the damper for the application. That is where the biggest difference, okay? From the outside, they all the same. Inside, mainly they all have the same part, okay? Uh, but it is the amount of work that the designer and the developer and the R&D is doing that is going to make uh, the difference for the final customer. That's for sure. And again, independently, on if it's red or is blue, or is a double tube or is between tube. Okay. Uh, for example, in in motorsport, we use in a lot of road through damper. Okay. I know it's been a couple of applications also in mountain bikes as they use it. Okay, and it's probably one of the most performance type of dampers you like to have, but it requires longer space, and uh, you know, it's, it requires some other dimension. And on a mountain bike, uh, you have restriction because uh, uh, you know you don't have too much space, so it's not used to. But again, it is other technologies that are available to make a very good, high-quality product, yeah? Uh, mountain bike have uh, somehow a, a, a way that uh, oblige quite a lot of compromise, especially in this, for who design in damper and also front fork. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure <laughs> that uh, it's changing. It's changing a little bit. I can see that is uh, uh, the weight uh, is still something, but is not so critical. And we start, you know, like uh, lately, we saw some air damper becoming a little bit more generous in size compared to the past. Okay, so and and I think this is it's it is good, but. And I remember when we started to make our first coil damper and our coil damper was as good as an air damper. And that was something very strange because, uh, you know, the geometry and, and everything for a bike designed for air damper couldn't suit a coil, but we st were still having some very good result. So the industry is, I think, lately... It's going to need to be more stable. We see, you know, that damper dimension and stroke are getting uh, more close. So uh, probably also uh, for us, it will become a little bit more uh, easy to concentrate uh, in really enhancing performance. It's not running after continuous change into the you know, dimension and shape. Yeah, there is a whole lot that we could dive into there, but it might be for the best if we kind of wrap this one up and say that perhaps we've got some more topics that we can cover in a in a part two later. So, Franco, I think this has been super informative and a lot of fun. Is there anything else that you want to touch on before we wrap up or should we leave it there and say that uh, perhaps a part two to come is in the works? No, I think we are fine. Uh, you know, talking, and after you start thinking, oh, 
we haven't spoke about this. We haven't talked about the other. So I think it's better we we finish like this and I put my mind and I write down a few notes for next time. Okay? Yeah, I have some thoughts and some things to cover too. So we'll leave that as a teaser and hope you've all enjoyed this and we'll be back with another one at some point before too long here. Thanks, Franco. This has been great. Ciao. Thank you. Thank you to everybody. Okay, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, if you're enjoying the show, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts to help keep the show going and growing. I also want to say thanks to Franco for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody.